Our scripture reading this evening is taken from the book of the prophet Haggai, Haggai chapter 2. Haggai writes in the context of a discouraged people. They've returned from exile and yet so much seems to have gone wrong. So Haggai chapter 2 Haggai chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the twenty-first of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more it is a little while. I will shake heaven and the earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations. And they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. On the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priests concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, No. And Haggai said, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. And now carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord. Since those days when one came to a heap of twenty ephahs there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw out fifty baths from the press there were but twenty. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labours of your hands yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now from this day forward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not yet have not yielded fruit. But from this day I will bless you. And the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the twenty-fourth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, 
every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Now this evening we shall be looking at the second prophecy of Haggai that's found in this chapter and the first nine verses. The first chapter is taken up with the call to build to this discouraged people. And they began to build and yet they remained a people who were discouraged. They remained a people where the spectre of discouragement, if you will, was very real. And rather than dealing with it, or rather not dealing with with it the way people tend to, which is by, well, not dealing with it and saying, well, we shall just ignore these doubts and fears and try to shut them out. God deals with the doubts and fears. He deals with this problem. It has been, after all, less than a month since the rebuilding work started. And the thing about beginning a big project is that it's usually in that early stage, after you've got started, that the absolute size of the project becomes apparent. Oh, it's not going to be that big a job. How many who have attempted DIY jobs at home have started off with, it's not going to be that big a job, and then... An hour or so into it, oh golly, this is an enormous job. Well, so it was for the the children of Israel. They got stuck into the temple. And yet, as they looked at the the ruins, as they looked at the, the sheer scale of what needed to be done, there was this feeling, this is impossible. What have we got ourselves involved in? And one of the big problems was this reality of comparing what we can build with what had been there in the past. Solomon's temple had gone. It's notable if you look at the date here that it is around the same time as the consecration of the original temple. So 1st Kings chapter 8. 1st Kings chapter 8. Making sure it's 1st Kings. 1st Kings chapter 8. And reading from verse 1. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. So this is the same time of year as the dedication of the original temple, the seventh month. And thoughts turned to the original temple, Solomon's temple. And it was a poor comparison that they made. The comparison problem. 
And God confronts this problem head on. It's a real problem. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? The old man had seen Solomon's temple. Now Solomon's temple had been beaten up. It had been damaged. It had needed repairs over the years. But it was a glorious building. It was panelled inside with cedar wood covered in gold leaf. It had at the entrance these two enormous bronze columns. No expense was spared in building it. And now they were rebuilding. But so much had changed. Solomon was a great and rich king. So that in his day, silver was not regarded as anything. It was so common. He was a man also with a great deal of influence. He was a king who ruled over a small empire. He he had influence with Tyre, for example, and Lebanon to bring in the cedar that he needed. Now there was no king in Jerusalem. And there wasn't going to be a king any time soon. There was a governor under the Persian Empire. Now, instead of the resources of a small empire being dedicated to this temple, now the resources were being given by a a big empire to a tiny, tiny little part of that empire. We might compare it to the rebuilding in this country and in Europe generally, in fact, after the Second World War. It was a time of austerity. If you compare buildings from, you can see photographs of buildings from before the Blitz in London, for example, and then you look at the replacement, the replacements are usually quite austere. Rather famously in Regent Square, not Regent Street, Regent Square, not far from from Euston, there was a Presbyterian church. And the, the facade of the original was built to look like York Minster, these two tall towers with pinnacles and all the Gothic detailing, etc. And it was damaged in the war, pulled down, and the replacement is just this great brick box with another brick box on the front. It's the same size as the previous building but you wouldn't say that it had any of the architectural refinements. Well the same was true with Solomon's temple, with the new temple, the rebuilt temple. It was the same size. It was on the foundations of Solomon's temple. But you wouldn't say it had any of the refinement of Solomon's temple. They couldn't do any of the Fancy carving. The amount of gold that could be used in decorating it would be so small. It would be big, yes. But it would not be glorious in that sense. And these older men also would be looking back and thinking about the words of the prophet. The words of the prophet. So for example... Isaiah chapter 60 and the the way it speaks of the glory of the temple. Isaiah 60, 13, the glory of Lebanon shall come to you. The cypress, the pine and the box tree together to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. 
And they looked at the materials, they looked at the reality that they would have to be very careful what they used. Will we have enough high quality cedar? We can't build the temple. We can't build something glorious like what was lost. And here again they fell into something of a trap, the trap of nostalgia. Nostalgia has this tendency, it paints the past in the the most glowing colours. Oh, things were better back then. And on the other hand, it shines the most unforgiving searchlight on the present. The present is terrible. And the result in this case was that it made people question the project. If we can't build something magnificent, why are we building at all? In your eyes, is it this not in your eyes as nothing contemptible? What can we do? We're so poor, so weak, so few. And what is God's response? First of all, God says, I know how you think. This is how you feel. And I know this. And secondly, he says, yet now be strong. And we are reminded with this call to be strong, first of all, of God's call to his people. Be strong, he says. Be strong. First of all, the call to Solomon. When Solomon began to build the temple. First Kings chapter 2 and Verse 2. Of course, the temple project began in the days of King David. David had it in his heart to build a temple to the Lord. But God would not let him do it. And said his son must do it. And so, 1 Kings chapter 2 from verse 1. Now the days of David drew near that he should die. And he charged Solomon his son, saying... I go the way of all the earth. Be strong therefore and prove yourself a man. Be strong. When Joshua took over from Moses leading the people of God. Must have been quite a a challenge to Joshua. Now Joshua was one of the two oldest men in the room. He was one of the two of his generation. He and Caleb. Who were spared to enter the promised land. He was not a young man. One often hears people talking about Joshua at the beginning of the book of Joshua as a young man. And it's, no, there's been the 40 years wilderness wandering. No, he was not a young man. But he was a man who was going into a new role. A role that he did not feel in the least prepared for. And so he is given that word from God. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 6. Be strong and of a good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper Wherever you go, be strong, says God. But not strong in our own strength. We are called to be strong in his might and in his power. Be strong, he says. 
and work for I am with you. You also note how the Lord describes himself. He has many titles. And here he uses this title, the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of armies. And the understanding of it is that he is the one who commands all the forces that there are, the angel armies, and the forces of nature are all at his command. So here they are looking and saying, what can we do with our resources? And God is reminding them, I am your resource. He goes on to say, verse 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. So don't worry about the resources. God's work, as one has said, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. That doesn't mean that it always feels like it doesn't lack God's supply. You may be familiar with George Mueller of Bristol, a godly man who had an orphanage and who was committed to the idea that of living by, by prayer living by faith and there would come times when the orphanage had no supplies left practically and they didn't know when the next meal was coming and they would come and knock at the door and it would be a baker with a load of bread or it would be a grocer with a load of supplies God's supply doesn't fail however it doesn't always feel like it's never going to fail Be encouraged, be strong. Why? I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. So my spirit remains among you, do not fear. It comes down to the covenant. The covenant God has covenanted with his people. He says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. He says, fear not, I am with you, Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And this is where our trust is, in his presence. Moses is very specific, very definite in the importance of the presence of the Lord. Exodus, Exodus chapter 33, from verse From verse 14. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he, that is Moses, said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? I am with you. And it's the Lord's presence with his people according to his promise that allows his people to do what we are called to do. We are strong in his might. Our strength is in the Lord. It is the covenant, according to the covenant, the word that I covenanted with you, with the language of making the covenant in the Old Testament here, is to cut a covenant. It's the the same procedure that we see laid out for us in Genesis in the account of the covenant made with Abraham. Genesis chapter 15 
Reading from verse 7, Then he, that is God, said to him, that is Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strange in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And and we find verse 17, And it came to pass, when the sun went down, it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. The picture is, here these animals have been cut in two, and then the, the party, this was quite common in the ancient Near East, but what would happen with men would be the two men making the covenant would both walk between the pieces. Here, however, Abraham doesn't do any walking. Abraham is asleep. Abraham is passive. And it's God who, under the imagery of the oven and the torch, passes between the parts of the carcass. And this was a sort of promise that said, if I break my covenant, may I be cut in two like these animals. It's a very solemn way of declaring, I am committing myself wholeheartedly to this. And so God commits himself wholeheartedly by cutting a covenant. Now God has sealed the covenant, the new covenant, with blood. That is the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He shed, as Hebrews tells us, he shed the blood of the new covenant. And is sealed with his blood. Christ has died and has risen again. The covenant is sealed with blood. And he has spoken. And he says, yet once more, I will shake heaven and earth the sea and dry land and I will shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations and I will fill this temple with glory says the Lord of hosts there will be a greater glory but there is a shaking a shaking of all nations ultimately of course a shaking is a shaking that relates to the end of the age that's what the Apostle writes in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth, a reference to the giving of the covenant at Sinai. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he is promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth but heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken. As of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. This world is given over to change. 
Change is a constant. Everything is changing, but God changes not. And he shakes all things. I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. Now this phrase, the desire of all nations, has been interpreted from actually the rabbinical days as a reference to the Messiah. Find it appears, for example, in the, the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Come, Desire of Nations, Come. There is, however, an issue with this, which is that literally the phrase is the desirable things of all nations. It's more likely that it refers to the things that coming from the nations, particularly, of course, the people of the nations. And it's, it is a language that, that does have a lot to do with the second coming, Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verse 24, speaking of the new Jerusalem. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honour into it. The glory and honour of the kings of the nations into the new Jerusalem. Christ receives all that is good, all that is worthwhile in this world shall flow to him in the end. And I will fill this temple with glory. Now, the rebuilt temple was itself rebuilt by Herod the Great. And it was that temple that the Lord Jesus Christ came into when he was here upon the earth. He was brought into it indeed very early in his earthly life. The Gospel according to Luke, Luke chapter 2, reading from verse 22. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons... And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus seduced for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms, blessed God, and saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant Depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. In this place I will give peace. And peace is Christ's great gift. He said to his disciples... On the night in which he was betrayed. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Peace I give 
For, as the Apostle says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Peace by his cross has Jesus made the church's everlasting head. Because ultimately the glory of God's people is Emmanuel, God with us. That great word, I am with you, is fulfilled in its fullness in the Lord Jesus. That is why he is Emmanuel. In this place I will give peace. Christ came to the temple to give peace. But now there is no temple in Jerusalem. Nor is the Christian expectation that there will be one. We're not looking for a rebuilt temple because there is a temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord today is the church. So the apostle, for example, in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple? You are. You are the temple of the Lord. That is the church. You, plural, are the temple of the Lord. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. This now is individual. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God and you are not your own for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. The temple of the Lord is his church. And it is made up as the Apostle Peter reminds us of living stones. People who are being built together into a holy temple in the Lord. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you, plural, are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them, walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Whenever the Apostle speaks of the temple of the Lord, he speaks of the church. And indeed, men look at the church and say, well, we are not exactly the most awe-inspiring group, perhaps. That's not what the Lord sees. The Lord sees a temple being built together. And the glory of the temple... Because again, one of the mistakes that these people had made was to think of the glory of the temple as being physical. The gold, the silver, the bronze, the stones. But the glory of the temple is the presence of God. Why was Solomon's temple destroyed? It was destroyed because they had defiled it. It had ceased to be the Lord's residence. 
We see this in Ezekiel chapter 10. The chapter is a, an extended description of the glory departing from the temple. So Ezekiel chapter 10 verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted their wings and they mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord departed. And so it was that not long after the temple was destroyed. Because it was God's presence that made the temple. It is God's presence that makes the church. The Lord is with his people and so he encourages us, encourages us to look to him for his work. And in his work he says, yet now be strong Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and be strong all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. I am with you. That great word, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And says the Lord of hosts, our resources may be poor, but his resources are eternal and inexhaustible. To him we look to do God's work in God's way, to God's glory. For we are his, and he is with his own. Amen.